Welcome, welcome. If you want to find your seats, what a joy it is to gather with you on the second Sunday of Easter. If this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, We're very glad that you're here. My name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're very, very glad that you're here this morning. Uh, If you would, grab a Bible, turn to page, uh, not page, but to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 28 this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 28. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be white or blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those and turn to uh, page 560. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Uh, now, um, briefly, we kind of have some some house cleaning um, to do together as a church family. Uh, if, uh, if this is your first time here, we apologize. This is going to take a few moments, but we're just going to briefly kind of address a few things. Uh, in particular, uh, this pertains to uh, the Apostles' Creed. Every week, uh, we together as a church family, we recite and profess the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, and this is a very important act that we do as a church. The church has done this for thousands of years. Uh, and, and in my estimation, the Apostles' Creed is uh, probably one of the most important um, extra-biblical uh, documents, probably top three, one of the most important documents outside of the Bible that we have uh, composed throughout church history. Uh, it's, a, it's a very um, concise presentation of biblical Uh, fundamental biblical Christianity. Uh, It presents the most central and important teachings of the Bible in in 84 words. At least it's 84 words in the original language. And it's our response to God every week as we uh, recite the Apostles' Creed together. It's it's our response every week to God when we hear his word read and proclaimed. uh, We're responding and saying, Lord, we, we believe you. Uh, we, we trust you. The story that you are telling, the story of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that's our story. We live in that story now. The, the story of the person, the work of Jesus, that's our story now. The, the story of the, uh, of the church, of the forgiveness of sins, of the resurrection of the body, of the life everlasting, uh, that is the story that defines our lives, that makes sense of our lives as followers of Jesus. Uh, so the elders and, and I believe that this is a, a, an important thing to do. That's why we recite the creed every week. That's why we do this. Uh, but we also recognize that sometimes it can cause some confusion. Uh, because of some of the translation issues and some of the historical issues, the creed can sometimes cause confusion. And when it causes confusion, sometimes it can even cause uh, offense. And so I wanted to let you know that uh, before we confess the creed uh, a a little later in the gathering uh, this morning, I wanted to let you know before we do that, that we've chosen to make uh, two minor changes to the translation of the Apostles' Creed that we use. Um, one change is fairly easy to understand. I don't, I don't think it'll uh, be hard to explain or understand. The other one requires a bit of explanation. Uh, and these changes, uh, just so you know, these changes are not things that we've made up. We're actually borrowing from some other uh, Christian traditions who have translated the Apostles' Creed uh, in these ways. And, and because we think they're wise to do so, uh, we're going to use the same sort of translations or phraseology that they use. Uh, the first change has to do with the article of the creed that um, professes our belief as we've previously recited it in the Holy Catholic Church. Um, uh, now, let me just say that the word Catholic is not a bad word. It's, it's a good word. Uh, it, it's just a word that, that simply means the entirety of the Christian 
church. Uh, it's the entirety of the people of God throughout space and time. It includes saints going all the way back to like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It includes saints in Kenya and China and Syria and the U.S. It includes uh, saints in heaven and saints on earth currently. Um, uh, and and, and it's, a, it's a good term that kind of describes the wholeness of the church. Um, but unfortunately, it can also be somewhat of a confusing term. Uh, some misunderstand the word Catholic, and, and they associate it with the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and because of this confusion, uh, some have even been offended uh, as, as they've gathered with us and, and heard us say this particular part of the creed. Now, as a church, we never want to compromise the truth of the gospel uh, in order to make the Christian faith more palatable. Uh, we, we believe that contextualization of the Christian faith and, and pursuing relevance can most definitely be taken too far. Uh, but at the same time, we also want to make the Christian faith as clear as possible uh, to the people that we've been called to love and serve and reach with the gospel. And so we want our beliefs to be as clear as possible in our context in Dayton, Ohio. And so to that end, from now on, uh, we're going to change this particular article Uh, the Holy Catholic Church. We're going to change this particular article uh, to the Holy Christian Church. The Holy Christian Church. We believe in the Holy Christian Church. Um, Again, we're not the first to do this. Luther actually made this very same change in the 1500s, and Lutherans have have used this exact uh, phraseology ever since. And we believe that it's wise to do so uh, in, in our time and place as well as we seek to propagate and proclaim the gospel uh, and, and the Christian faith in the city of Dayton in 2018. So we're making that particular change. Um, the second change has to do with the article that professes our belief that Christ uh, descended into hell. Every week we say together uh, that Christ, we believe that he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again. Uh, and we say that every single week. Uh, now, all that we mean when we say that he descended into hell is that Jesus, his death, was complete to the point of the separation of his body and spirit, and that his spirit departed to the realm of the dead. That's all that we simply mean by that. Um, Now, you may or may not know there's actually several different positions on this particular article of the creed and what it means. Uh, There are several orthodox and perfectly acceptable positions, uh, and there are a few unacceptable and false positions on what that particular article means. But I think we can get some clarity if we simply look at the word translated as hell here. We say this every week together, we should know what it means. Um, and, and so let's, let's kind of look at it. The word hell here, uh, originally in the, in the original language, it's the word Hades. Uh, you might be familiar with that term. Uh, uh, it's also, if, if the creed was translated into Hebrew, uh, it would be the word sheol. So you see that word in the Old Testament sometimes when you read. You see the word Hades in the New Testament often. Uh, you see the word sheol in the Old Testament somewhat often. Um, and, and all that sheol or Hades means uh, is the collective place of the dead or like the collective realm of the dead. That's what Hades means. And it's where every dead person goes as they await the return of Jesus to the earth, the the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead. And if you put together all of the scriptural texts that uh, speak to this uh, place called Hades, that that, kind of reveal the nature of this place called Hades, you would see that Hades is divided into two realms. 
Uh, it's divided into what's sometimes called paradise or sometimes called Abraham's bosom. Uh, so you see that those uh, phrases describe um, describe this this uh, this domain in Hades, uh, and this is where those who trust in Jesus go after death. And then the second domain of Hades is often referred to, uh, particularly uh, by Jesus, it's referred to as Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna, and this is where those who don't trust in Jesus go after death. And Gehenna was actually the name of this like fiery dump outside of Jerusalem. So that gives you somewhat of a picture of what that place is like in Hades. Uh, and we know that, that based on what Jesus says to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, that Jesus went to paradise, or, or what's sometimes referred to as Abraham's bosom after his death. He said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, that's the place where saints go, where those who trust in Jesus go after, uh, as they await after death and as they await the final return of Jesus to the earth, the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead. And so, uh, just to be clear, so when we confess that particular article of the creed, we're not confessing that Jesus went to Gehenna. Uh, When we confess that particular article of the creed, we're not confessing that Jesus went to uh, the lake of fire. Hell is where Satan and demons and those who don't trust in Jesus will go at the final judgment. Hell, with the way that we typically use the word uh, and the way that we rightly should use the terminology, is the lake of fire talked about in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2014 says that Hades and death uh, will be cast into the lake of fire, that Christ is going to cast Hades and death into the lake of fire to hell. Um, And so we're not saying that Christ descended into the lake of fire and was like tortured for three days. We're not saying that. We're not saying that Jesus descended into Gehenna. What we're saying is that Christ truly and really died to the point where his body and his spirit were separated and his body was in this tomb and his spirit descended into Hades and went to paradise, to Abraham's bosom. And so in order to to clarify what we mean when we confess this particular part of the creed, uh, we're going to change uh, some of the phraseology, uh, some of the, the, we're going to use a different translation of it. Instead, we're going to recite it as, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. Again, we're not the first to do this, uh, similar to the previous change that we mentioned. Uh, we're not the first to do this. The Anglican Church has actually used this exact same translation, uh, and, and we believe it better represents what the creed is actually getting to. Uh, so uh, as we say this, we are, uh, again, saying that uh, Jesus truly died. His body and spirit were separated. His body was in the tomb. His spirit descended to Hades. It, it descended to the realm of the dead. That's where Jesus went those three days. His spirit went on those three days. And that's very important. You know, this is a very important truth. It's, it's not a trite thing. It's not an unimportant thing. It's a very important truth because throughout history, throughout history, uh, there have been some who denied that Jesus truly died. There have been some that said that Christ's spirit ascended to glory before he actually died because it's not proper for uh, the Son of God to actually die. Some have said that, that it was a sort of phantom or a ghost up there who just pretended to be Jesus. Uh, some have, have professed that Jesus didn't die. He just kind of swooned and passed out 
out from all the pain up there. And when we confess this particular part of the creed together, we're saying, no, he really truly died. His spirit and his body were separated. His body went to the tomb and he was a cold, dead corpse in the ground and his spirit uh, went to paradise. He was truly dead. His spirit descended to the realm of the dead. His, his body was a cold, dead corpse in the tomb. And you know, because Christ's death, because his actual, true, real death, we have forgiveness and freedom from sin. Because death is the penalty and the, the uh, payment of sin. And Jesus has offered that payment for us. He has dealt with the penalty of sin for us. He's dealt with death for us in his death. And because he has paid this penalty for us, we have total assurance of freedom and forgiveness in him. And not only that, but it actually completely transforms the way that we think about and pr- approach death now as Christians. Um, th- think of saying the creed every week, and, and this particular portion of the creed every week. Think of it every week as preparing you to deal with death. That's what it's doing every single week when we profess the creed together. It, it's preparing us to deal with death for others' deaths, for, for our loved ones and their deaths, and also for our own deaths. It's preparing us to deal with death. For us as Christians, death continues to be uh, uh, a manifestation of and, and a result of the curse of sin. We don't need to soften it or, or, or candy coat it by any means. Death is an enemy and one that leads to much uh, suffering and pain and tears in this life. But also at the same time, we can rejoice in hope because Jesus tasted death for us and he didn't stay dead. His spirit and his body were reunited in the tomb in Jerusalem, and he rose again in his once and for all victory over death forever. In his cross, death, and resurrection, he has dealt with and defeated sin and death. Therefore, sin and death for, for us as Christians is a defeated foe. It's a defeated enemy. Uh, we will face death. Yes, our bodies and spirits will be separated, and we will descend to the place of the dead like Jesus did, but we will also rejoice and receive the resurrection of our bodies at his return, at the final judgment. And that's actually what we're looking at uh, this morning as we open 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 28. And so if you want to turn your eyes to the text, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth here. He had just planted this church about three years earlier. He had just planted uh, the church. He's probably in Ephesus now, and he's writing to them uh, to correct just a number of issues going on in the church. Uh, there's, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, there's a ton of terrible things going on in the church. And probably worst of all, is this is what's troubling Paul probably the most, is that some of them were denying the resurrection of the body. Uh, they weren't denying Christ's bodily resurrection at his, re- at, at his return. Or, or they, they weren't denying Christ's bodily resurrection, but they were denying our own bodily resurrection that we will experience at his return. They were denying that we will be raised with Christ at his return. Uh, and this is very, very troubling to Paul. So the Apostle Paul writes this chapter to them in order to correct them on this basic tenet of the Christian faith. Uh, and so we're actually going to spend several weeks, uh, six Sundays total, considering 1 Corinthians 15, this most important doctrine as we walk through the season of Easter. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy because this is the voice of our God addressing us here this morning. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve to 28. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this most important truth that Christ has been raised and that he has been raised as the first fruits and that we get to look forward to our own resurrection from the dead when he returns. And we thank you for the great assurance that this gives us, that his resurrection gives us, the great confidence that his resurrection gives us, that we are set free from our sins, that sin no longer has any rights over us, that our resurrection is as sure a thing as his resurrection is, and that death will be destroyed. Our enemy death will be destroyed forever, and we will live an everlasting life with Jesus when he returns. And so we ask that you would give us a foretaste of that now as we open your word, as we open the scripture, and as, and, and as we prepare to approach the Lord's table. Like, like the disciples in, in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, would you, as we open the scriptures, would you let our hearts burn within us? And when we come to the table, would you help us to recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, speaking of the Apostles' Creed, um, every Sunday when we gather together uh, to profess the faith, to confess the faith together, as we recite the Apostles' Creed together, uh, we recite and, and confess and profess that we believe in the resurrection of the body. And that's another one of those kind of peculiar phrases in the creed. Uh, now, the Apostles' Creed, again, is, is uh, probably the most concise statement of Christian faith that we have. Uh, like, it's bare-bones Christianity. Uh, it was known as the baptismal creed in the first several centuries of the Christian faith. It was, it was the sort of bare minimum, what someone needed to confess and affirm and believe if they were going to be baptized as a Christian in a church, and it included this, this sort of bare-bones affirmation of the faith. Um, and included in this bare-bones affirmation of the faith is the resurrection of the body. Now, what do we mean by that? What do we mean every single week when we gather together 
and say that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 answers that question for us. Last week, Easter Sunday, we uh, gathered to consider 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. And, uh, and you may or may not know this, um, but, but uh, traditionally, Easter is not just like a single Sunday celebration. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, uh, he, he uh, walked with his disciples, and he taught them, and he ate with them, and he preached to them, and he, and he spent time with them for about 40 days, he, for 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended into heaven. He walked with them and taught them and, and, and ate, them, ate with them. And, uh, and so the church, often to reflect that, they've celebrated Easter for 40 days, for six Sundays. And so we're going to take the next six Sundays to consider 1 Corinthians 15, which speaks to this, this uh, belief of Christians in the resurrection of the dead. We consider Christ's resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Not only that, but our own coming bodily resurrection. Uh, according to biblical Christianity, according to 1 Corinthians 15, um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not like an isolated event. Uh, it was also the means and the model for what's going to happen to the cosmos at Christ's return, and also what's going to happen to us individually as his followers when he returns. In the same way that Christ's body and spirit were reunited and he was resurrected on Easter morning, uh, When he returns, our spirits and our bodies are going to be reunited and we will be raised from the dead on the last day. Now, unfortunately, that's a fairly uh, foreign doctrine to many American Christians. Uh, There's a lot of confusion regarding what our our final hope is as Christians. There's a a lot of confusion about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. There's a lot of confusion uh, amongst professing Christians about what our uh, final act of salvation will be. Uh, Many professing Christians believe that the world is going to be kind of like utterly destroyed and that we're going to cease, our bodies are going to cease to exist. Uh, Many professing Christians believe that uh, we are going to spend eternity in some sort of disembodied, uh, merely spiritual existence. Uh, Back in 2006, Ohio University did a survey where only 36% of the 1,007 Christian adults surveyed said yes to the question, do you believe that after you die, your physical body will be raised from the dead? Do you believe in the resurrection of the body? And 54% said that they do not believe, and 10% said that they were undecided. Now, this is the most basic Christian truth. This is a basic Christian truth that Paul is speaking to here. That's why it's included in the creed. That's why Paul writes to these, Christ, uh, these Corinthian Christians to correct some of their false ideas about our final hope. Uh, some of the Christians in Corinth were denying the Christian belief that we will be raised from the dead at Christ's return. They weren't denying Christ's bodily resurrection, but they were denying our own resurrection, our own bodily resurrection at his return. And to separate these inseparable truths, it was absolutely unthinkable to Paul. And so he writes to them about this now and about how Christ has been raised from the dead 
And because of that, we live in eager expectation of our own resurrection. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we live in eager expectation of our own resurrection. That's our kind of big idea for the morning. Uh, And we're going to consider that in three stages. First, the confusion uh, kind of surrounding this belief. Uh, Two, the, the concept, Paul's argument, what he's getting to here, the concept of Paul's argument. And number three, the confidence we have because of this uh, beloved truth. The confusion, the concept, and the confidence. Um, Now, I don't think it comes as much of a surprise to any of us this morning that there's a great deal of confusion uh, surrounding uh, death and what happens in life after death. Uh, Death is obviously hard to deal with. Uh, Death is probably the the biggest cause of anxiety and pain and tears and mourning that we experience in this life. It's something we all have to deal with at some point in time. You're going to deal with the death of loved ones, of friends and family. You're going to deal with your own death. Many of us are going to deal. All of us are going to deal with our own death, and we're probably going to suffer quite a bit before we get there. Uh, We all have to deal, though, with the reality of death. Every single one of us has to deal with the reality of death. And those outside of the Christian faith seek to deal with death in in a number of ways. Uh, I was talking with a non-Christian friend of mine recently, and and, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and I was talking with him about death and its certainty and how it's coming. Uh, And he very bluntly and honestly said to me, and I appreciated his his candor and honesty, but he said, "I I don't think about, I don't, think about death very often. I don't want to because it bums me out. And uh, I, I, I think this is a serious problem because refusing to think about death and to think about one's own death isn't going to make it go away. And it actually will probably just lead to a life of, of just shallowness and, and waste. Uh, still others seek to deal with, with death by putting it off as, as much as possible as they're able to do so. Everyone knows this person, uh, or at least you're familiar with the sort of caricature of this person, the sort of Chris Traegers of the world, you know, the like my body is a microchip kind of guy. Um, those who carry their vitamin and, and supplement and herb belts with them everywhere they go to try to, you know, stave off death with exercise and, and all of that. Uh, Still others seek to deal with death by tragically and naively embracing uh, death as just part of life. You know, you'll sometimes hear people talk about death as just, it's just the same as every other part of life. It's just, it's, uh, they try to lessen the sting of it by, uh, by treating it not as an enemy or result of sin, but just simply as something to be embraced. Uh, then there's also those uh, who, who deal with a great deal of confusion regarding what happens after we die. Uh, some believe the body and soul just cease to exist. Uh, some believe that body and soul uh, are, are separated and that our bodies go into the ground and that they decay and, and cease to exist eventually, but our souls go on forever. Some, some believe that, uh, that our souls just take on a sort of different embodiment and, and, uh, and we're reincarnated over and over again. Um, and, and in all this, I, th- I think the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides a great defense for what we believe as Christians because we can say, look, like, let's just ask the guy who rose again on the third day. I bet that he'll know what happens when we die and what's going to happen after our death. Um, but unfortunately, even amongst Christians, there's just a great deal of confusion that can surround the nature of death and life after death and the resurrection of the dead. And this was most certainly the case in Corinth. Uh, apparently, some of the Christians in Corinth did not believe in the resurrection of the body. That's why Paul asks in verse 12, you look at verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Uh, now, it's clear 
that they weren't denying that Christ had been raised from the dead. Uh, But they were denying that resurrection is a corporate reality that we will all partake in as Christians. And the reason that they were struggling with this, um, and and, and the reason that they were uh, denying this, is really has to do with the culture that they lived in and the sort of pagan religion in which they were steeped prior to their conversion. Uh, The Greeks and the Romans had a serious problem uh, with the Jewish and Christian idea of the resurrection of the body. Uh, The religions and philosophies that they typically held to believed that the body and physical matter in general is intrinsically evil. Okay, so at death, uh, Greeks believed, uh, Greek pagans believed that a person's spirit uh, is set free from like the prison house of the body. And that the, the, the body is like the source of our sinful actions and desires. Uh, they believe that death was uh, the moment when a person was set free from this material existence and from their bodies that was the source of all humanity's problems. And I probably don't need to explain to you that, that this way of thinking has greatly influenced many Western Christians today. This view uh, that some of the Corinthians were holding uh, is, is maybe representative of, of, of uh, many of what uh, Western Christians hold to today. For maybe many most uh, Western Christians today, they believe that the final hope we have as Christians is just merely going to heaven when we die. Uh, now, we do go to heaven when we die. We talked about that a few moments ago. Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he says that to be away from the bodies, to be at home with the Lord. Uh, meaning that when we die, our body and our spirit separate and our spirits ascend to the Lord in paradise. Um, But I want you to realize this morning that that is not our final hope as Christians. Uh, That's why theologians have often referred to or called this place that we go to after we die, they call it the intermediate state. It's an intermediate, a sort of non-permanent, in-between state of being. And, and we should be thankful for it, and it's important. It's a very important truth. But it's not actually the emphasis of the New Testament. The emphasis of the New Testament is that of our final hope, that as Christians, we will be raised from the dead. When Jesus returns, our bodies and our souls will be reunited And we will live in resurrected bodies forever on a restored earth. That's our final hope as Christians. Now you often hear Christians talk about how how much they want to get rid of their bodies and go to heaven. And and sometimes you might hear Christians talk about how the spiritual realm is superior to the physical realm. Even You see this in many of the beloved hymns and songs that that we sing, like I'll Fly Away. You know, this is kind of glorying in this reality, and it's kind of poo-pooing the physical realm, the you know, matter and, and, and the body and all of this. Uh, they treat matter and physical stuff as being less important than, uh, than spiritual stuff. They treat the spiritual realm as being superior to the physical realm. But I, I want you to know that has more in common with Plato than it does Paul. That has more in common with Greek pagan religions than it does the Bible. The Bible says that our bodies are good, that physical matter is good. When God created in Genesis 1, he pronounced all of the physical matter in the created order good. He, cre- he pronounced it good. When Christ returns, he's not going to destroy and, and wrap up the created order. Uh, he's going to make it new again. He's going to restore it. 
uh, the, the Christian worldview believes not in the destruction of the body and of the physical world, but the restoration and the resurrection of them both. The Old Testament writers, the New Testament writers, the early church believe that our bodies would be resurrected just like Christ's body was and that the earth would be restored and renewed at Christ's return. Uh, according to Christ and according to the apostles, Christ's bodily resurrection is the pattern for what will happen to us and to the entirety of God's cosmos when Christ returns. And what I'm talking about here is the concept of Paul's argument, and that's the resurrection of the dead. Uh, as, as I mentioned before, some of the Corinthians were denying the corporate resurrection of the dead. They believed that Christ's resurrection was a, a sort of isolated, unique event that would never happen again in history. But for Paul, this is, this is utterly unthinkable. Uh, for Paul, uh, th- there is an unbreakable connection between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. For Paul, Christ's resurrection was the means and the model for our own resurrection. For Paul, Christ's resurrection wasn't an isolated event. For Paul, Christ's resurrection was the beginning of the corporate resurrection of God's people, which will take place at Christ's return. You know, in Paul's day, Jewish thought didn't even have a category for a single individual's uh, resurrection. Ancient Jewish thought believed that the resurrection of the body was a, a corporate event. That's why Christ's individual resurrection ended, ended up being somewhat of a surprise uh, for the disciples. They didn't have a category in their minds for an individual being raised in the middle of this age. They only had a category for a corporate resurrection at the end of the age. And so when Christ was raised from the dead in Jerusalem in the first century, the early Jewish Christians saw Christ's resurrection as the future age having broken into this age in their midst in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? So Christ's resurrection then wasn't an isolated occurrence. The resurrection of the body is something that began with Christ Jesus, but that will eventually take place with all of God's people at his return. All of God's people will be raised from the dead just as Christ was raised from the dead. Those who follow Jesus will be raised from the dead at the end of the age and experience everlasting shalom and peace with him forever. As Paul says in Colossians 1.18, Christ is the, the firstborn of the dead. In his being the firstborn from the dead, he has paved the way for the resurrection of our bodies at the end of the age when he returns. There's an unbreakable connection between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection for Paul. And he uses this very interesting word to communicate this. In verses 20 and 23, Paul refuses, or refers to Christ's resurrection as the firstfruits of the resurrection of the dead, the first fruits of our resurrection. Verse 20 says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In verse 23, he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, it's a weird word, first fruits. It's a weird word. It's a single word. You can type it into your phone probably. It'll probably try to autocorrect it and make it two words or put a hyphen between them. But it's an, it's an agricultural term. Uh, us city folk might not know much about it, but it's, it's a word that describes the sort of beginning fruitfulness of a crop before harvest time. 
Uh, around this time of year in Ohio, many farmers are, are planting corn in their fields. And, and, and later in the summer, if you get in your car, maybe in August, if you get in your car, September, if you get in your car and you hop on 35 and you drive east, maybe to, to Greenville or something where there's tons of corn fields, you're going to start to see rows and rows of, of corn pop up. And, and uh, this is starting to sound like a country song. Um, but you can, you can go up to some of these crops and you can, uh, you might even see a few ears of corn uh, ready to be harvested. Most of them are not, uh, but a few of them may be ready for harvest. And you can take those ears of corn home. Um, I mean, don't steal them. This is an analogy. Goodness. Uh, but, but you can take those ears of corn home and you can grill them on the grill and you can put butter on them and salt on them and you can eat them. Those are the first fruits. The rest of the crop hasn't come yet. It's not ready for harvest, but there are a few places here there where you're going to find these, these uh, ears of corn ready to be harvested and eaten. Those are the first fruits of the harvest. And the Jews, they even had a feast for this. The Feast of Firstfruits. Every spring, uh, the Israelites would celebrate the Feast of Firstfruits as a time of thanksgiving to God for the firstfruits of, of their grain harvest. Uh, they would offer up the very first sheaf of the, of the harvest, and they would, they would kind of wave it before the Lord. They would kind of wave it before the Lord in the temple as an offering. And they were not able to, to eat anything from the crop until they offered up and, and waved this initial portion uh, of the crop before the Lord in the temple. And if they were faithful in doing this, if they, if they offered acceptable sacrifices at the Feast of the first fruits, then the Lord promised that he would bring about a fruitful harvest in the weeks to come. They would receive a great harvest from his bountiful hand if they offered acceptable sacrifices in the Feast of first fruits. And so you can kind of see what Paul's doing here, can't you? Uh, he's saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of this great harvest. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. He was raised from the dead as the first fruits of our resurrection. And like with what took place with the offering of the first fruits and the feast of the first fruits, Christ ascended into heaven and he is waved before God as an acceptable offering before God. And he is an acceptable offering. And because he is an acceptable offering, we can look forward to our own harvest, our own resurrection from the dead at his return because of his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, his perfect fulfilling of the law. He was vindicated by God by being raised from the dead. And as the perfect vindicated Lord, he is waved before God as an acceptable offering, as the offering of the first fruits for all of those who are in him. Therefore, we look forward to the great harvest when our own bodies, which will be planted in the ground at death, will be raised victoriously into everlasting life in the world without end. That's what Paul is getting at here. Now, I know that, that some of this is somewhat of a new concept for some of you, and that's okay. Um, you might have been under the impression that the final hope for us as Christians is simply going to heaven when we die and, and having a, a sort of disembodied spiritual existence for eternity. But what I'm telling you is what God's word is telling you here. It's not just me. It's what God's word is telling you here is that our final hope is not just life after death. Our final hope is life after life after death. 
That's our final hope. Our final hope is an embodied existence on this very earth. Not just our bodies as they are currently, not the earth as it is currently, but our bodies and the earth will be fully restored. They will be resurrected. They will be fully renewed. What took place 2,000 years ago in the empty tomb will take place for us as God's people and with God's creation. As Michael Reeves, he, he once put it like this. He said, the empty tomb is the womb of the new creation. What happened in that tomb 2,000 years ago will take place with the cosmos and with our own bodies when Christ returns. Now, I'm guessing that this claim might have raised a, just a number of questions for you. Uh, questions like, what are our, what are our bodies going to be like at that time? And when is this going to happen? And, and, and what are we going to do on that day? And what are we going to do in our bodies forever? Uh, and, and other questions as well. And I, and I hope that uh, we're going to get to some of those questions as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians 15. But for now, I want you to know that this makes a big difference in our lives right now as followers of Jesus. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope. We await our own resurrection with eager expectation. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have confidence. We have confidence because of Christ's resurrection. First, we have confidence that Christ reigns, that he reigns as king. Verse 25 says that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul is saying that at this present time, Jesus Christ is reigning as king over the entire universe as he is seated at the right hand of God. That's what the ascension is is largely symbolic for. That's largely what the ascension of Jesus is all about. It's about him being seated on the throne of heaven and earth at God's right hand. The ascension of the risen Christ is him being installed as the world's king. And Paul's gotten that from Jesus himself. One of the passages of Scripture we talk about a lot here is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus begins that passage by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Past tense, he has it right now. He is the king over the cosmos. He's the king over heaven and earth right now. In other words, he's saying, I am the king now. I'm the king over everything visible and invisible. I am king over humanity and rulers and authorities and Satan and demons and everything. He is right now in a position to exercise power in the world and in history and over the powers of darkness. And Paul says that the purpose of this reign currently is to put all his enemies under his feet. He's in the process of destroying all that defaces and desiccates and and, and desecrates and destroys his good creation, especially that which destroys his image bearers. And according to the Great Commission, the means through which he is doing that in the earth is through the church. That's through us, you, sitting in that bench right now. He's doing this through us. That's what the Great Commission is saying. It's through the preaching of the gospel. It's through the administration of the ordinances. It's through the prayers of God's people. It's through works of justice and mercy and acts of love and kindness and generosity. It's through reconciliation and healing and and pushing back the powers of darkness that God is destroying every rule and authority through his church. He's carrying out uh, this mission to destroy his enemies through his people. Now, I should say, too, that that we need to temper this because this will only be accomplished in measure now. We won't see the full results of his reign until he returns. Uh, Paul is kind of getting at this in, in verse 26 when he says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The ultimate victory is something we have to await for, for Christ's return to experience. 
But until then, we have confidence that he reigns and we are called to sacrificial mission because he reigns through us, his people. Second, we have confidence that we are forgiven. In verse 17, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But if you kind of reverse his reasoning here, since Christ has been raised from the dead, since it is a fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, we are no longer in our sins. Our sins are forgiven. We are free from guilt. We are totally and completely and finally forgiven because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is driving at here is that death is the penalty of sin. As Paul puts it in Romans 6.23, he says the wages of sin is death. But Christ has been resurrected and he has gotten victory over death. Therefore, he has also gotten victory over sin. As N.T. Wright puts it, he says sin is the root cause of death. If death has been defeated, it must mean that sin has been dealt with too. You see, Christ's victory over death gives us assurance that he has defeated and gotten victory over our sin as well. The resurrection gives us assurance of our forgiveness. Because of the resurrection, sin has no right over you, Christian. Sin has no right over you. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is gone. Sin has no rights over you. So if you're struggling with, with assurance, if you're struggling with, with whether or not you're forgiven, look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you trust him, your forgiveness is as objective a reality as his resurrection. You have real, objective, full, free, true forgiveness right now if you trust in Jesus. And because you're forgiven, because Jesus Christ is an acceptable offering on your behalf, third, we have confidence that we will be raised. Not only is our forgiveness as objective a reality as Christ's resurrection, but our resurrection is as objective a reality as Christ's resurrection. So much so, actually in Romans 8.30, Paul speaks of our resurrection in the past tense. He says, it's as good as done. It is a, he speaks of it in the past tense. It's a sure thing to Paul. It's like it's already happened. The resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of our bodies is our most certain hope. Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. He was raised, so will we be. As the Apostle Paul John, or as the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, he says, when he appears, when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. When our eyes behold him on that last day, we will be made like him. Our transformation will be complete and we will receive resurrection bodies and live in perfection and everlasting life forever and ever in the world without end. You can have confidence in that. Fourth, we have confidence that death will be destroyed. Again in verse 23, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed, destroyed is death. A day is coming when death will be destroyed forever and we will never see death or experience death or mourn death ever again. Revelation 21.4 tells us, about that day, a day where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, a day when death will be no more, a day when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. And, 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 the, and the writer, Apostle John, says that all of the former things will have passed away. That's our hope 
and our confidence right now, right now when we continue to struggle with things like depression, we continue to, to struggle with tears and pain and mourning, uh, uh, when we continue to struggle with the death of a loved one, when we face our own death, we do so with hope. We do so looking forward to a day when death will be defeated where Christ himself will dry our tears and we will live in shalom and the delight and the perfect peace of resurrection life with Jesus Christ forever. We will live in God's most wonderful world. We will live with him in life as it was meant to be. Everything sad, J.R.R. Tolkien said, well, everything sad will come untrue. And what could be more important than being there on that day and looking forward to that day for real hope, real peace, real assurance right now. That's why Paul felt it necessary to write to the Corinthians concerning this, to clarify their their confusion, to encourage them with this concept and to stir up their confidence. And our confidence is this, because Christ has been raised from the dead, we live in eager expectation of our own resurrection. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of our own resurrection in the life to come. When he returns, when we see him, we will be made like him, and we will live in resurrection life with him forever. And this good news, this good news that we recite every single week gives meaning and purpose to everything we do as Christians. Because of what Christ has done on Calvary and Easter, we can live in confidence of our forgiveness of our coming resurrection. Because of what Christ has done in Calvary and on Easter, we are empowered to live as resurrection people right now. People who push back darkness and who live boldly on mission. We face, when we face dark times and, and hard times and suffer suffering, we, we can do so with hope. We even face death with hope and with confidence. Because the reality is we are going to die. All of us are going to die. Many of us will face severe suffering before we get there. And God's word is preparing us now before we get there. God's word is preparing us now for that day. It's preparing us to be people of joy and confidence and hope on that day because Christ is risen. And because Christ is risen, we will be raised with him. Therefore, it's with great joy and confidence and hope that we can say together in a few moments when we, when we recite the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. And we thank you that we have assurance that this is true because Christ himself rose from the dead. We're no longer in our sins. Thank you for that. We look forward to our own resurrection. We thank you for that. We we thank you that that Christ reigns right now as the king over everything. Our, our, Our head, our Lord, our king is the king over all. We thank you for that. We thank you for the coming day. That, that We thank you for the reality that death will be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire and that we will never experience or taste death again at Christ's return. Lord, and, and we ask that you would strengthen us with this hope now, that you would help us to live as sacrificial people, people who sacrifice for your great commission. We ask that you would help us to live as resurrection people who expect resurrection life and the power of the Holy Spirit, even now, Lord. Would you help us to live into that reality? Would you help us to live into that most holy calling? We ask that as we continue to work through 1 Corinthians 15, that you would open our eyes, 
that you would help us to, to feel the burning of our hearts as we open the scriptures, like the disciples felt in Luke 24. And we ask now, as we are about to approach the table, that you would help us to recognize Christ, to open our eyes to see him in the breaking of the bread. Help us to to remember what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection. Help us to commune with him now as we partake. And help us to look forward to the day, the resurrection of the dead, when we will feast with him in the new heavens, the new earth. In Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. We look back and remember his sacrifice.